0: Welcome to a very special Thanksgiving episode of Filmmaker Toolkit. My name is Sarah Shackett, I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and I am so glad that I get to break into the feed today and hope that if you are observing American Thanksgiving you're having a great day off. Uh, And what better way to celebrate coming together over food and our shared culpability in systemic inequality fueled by violence than to talk about The Menu, which is a fantastic, funny thriller that gives some entitled fine diners uh, their just desserts, to say the least. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting down with director Mark Mylod to discuss his process for the film's blend of comedy, thriller elements, and horror, uh, the single location shooting of the film, and the sort of chef's table aesthetic that the film had to get just right. And Mark was incredibly generous with talking through his influences, his approach to the menu's visual style, uh, the tricks of working with a large ensemble cast, and, and even more, this conversation is a very full meal, which I promise is the last pun that I'm going to make. Um, the two caveats I have are, first, we do get into the ending of the film, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, I would recommend uh, holding off on listening to this until you're on your way back home from seeing the menu, Uh, And second, there are some audio processing uh, filters on both of our mics to make the conversation sound a little bit more legible, because we were speaking over Zoom. Um, Thank you for your your patience and indulgence on that front, Um, and please enjoy this conversation with Mark Mylod. I would love to start by asking, the look of the menu is certainly in the same ballpark as stuff you've done before on Succession, um, or stuff we've seen before, but I'm curious sort of what your goals were for the visuals and how um you wanted to make them distinct
1: um, So my visual and tonal goals, Sarah, was um, well first it first it started obviously with reading the script and 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 that immediate instinctive reaction one often has, you know particularly when when it's a good script um is to. Where you want to place it it unfolds in your head as you read um and and the first thing and the dominant force I think was what a fantastic cinematic ride um it felt such fun and and I really wanted that you know particularly having been in you know in the television world for the for the best part of a decade exclusively um I thought if i'm going to come back and you know make make a movie again um part of that I'd really like it to be a movie a project that really felt at home in the cinema and this did which you know somewhat paradoxically because obviously so much of the story takes place in the one in the one location in the restaurant um and then of course that there was this lovely triangle of of satire and dark comedy and and that kind of psychological thriller horror kind of mashup that felt immediately and instinctively really fascinating and really interesting to me because the three Sides of that triangle all seem to feed off each other in, in the writing, and I could see how to extend that into into the film and, and, and into the visual treatment of it.
0: Yeah, I would love to get into that. You know, how something that is sort of single location can be cinematic.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, how to make it cinematic is really just well, first of all, it was actually just looking at the, the kind of masters and actually taking trying to take a leaf out of their book, you know, specifically. Parasite, obviously, which is just brilliant, and the way he weaponized the, the architecture of that house, really, and, and it just felt so dynamically cinematic, didn't it? Um, and the way he staged. Um, and Misery, to, also, to a certain extent, which is really yeah. a really fun ride also, and just fantastically cinematic, I think, and the, the, particularly the use of camera placement and the lenses there. For me, it, I, I knew that it would be a, a lovely challenge to to take a room where a lot of people are sat down for a lot of the time and okay. actually give that kinetic energy and make it dynamic as a space. And, and first triggers to get the right people. And, and um, I met with a brilliant designer called Ethan Topman, who, who lives and breathes that end of high-end cuisine amongst many other talents. And, um, and together we started working out the dynamics of the space and two key elements for me was that there was this open-plan kitchen so that we could have these two worlds, this, um, and if you like, this kind of microcosm of society to a certain extent, the givers and the takers um, between the dining room and the, and the kitchen. Um, and, and when the camera is in the kitchen, or rather in the dining room with the diners, it was always, I loved the idea of having this kind of upstage element of, uh, of the lurking um, cooks and the, their threat through that kind of military choreography of their work. Um, always going on, you know, even obviously using the lenses with a relatively limited depth of field. They were, all, were always there as a slightly out of focus threat to the diners. That was important. And then flipping 180 degrees from that towards the window, um, Ethan created this huge wall of windows, basically unbreakable glass. Um, um, looking out over the ocean, you know, providing this barrier between the diners and and that untenable unreachable freedom represented by the ocean outside that window and then of course you know we we plotted it so that the sun would gradually go down into darkness um over the course of the evening thereby isolating and uh, and putting more pressure on our characters so in those two specific ways um we tried to keep the space dynamic so the light keep evolving working with peter denning a brilliant uh d p. uh and then really it comes down to staging um really in terms of using the movement primarily of rafe rafe's character chef sloak and everything in this world is of course his universe, and uh that that involved actually an awful lot of the process actually and they you know found myself asking myself, you know what would Chef's, chef Sloak do um a lot of times in terms of honing the design and actually ultimately. The camera positions actually particularly when photographing his world the food or the chef's anything going on in the kitchen uh, and and even chris um the the editor and i we found ourselves asking that question about the pacing of the film once we were into the edit um this was a journey that is totally controlled by Chef like how would he do it um and that was a really interesting exercise particularly i suppose coming off the back of Having just shot season three of Succession, um, which has such a different, you know, camera grammar, such a different metronome to the edit, such a different, um, some similar overlapping themes, certainly, but uh, but a very different metronome to it.
0: No, absolutely. Um, Although it feels similarly, like I was struck by... You know, sort of the the integrity of every table is having a conversation at once, and we can be anywhere we we want to be or where the chef's focus is. And I I read that you worked in a very similar way of just like miking everybody up and rolling for long takes, is that true?
1: Yes, uh, that's something I took from Succession, uh, but but that that way of working goes back way before me. It goes back to Robert Altman, um, who is one of my big cinematic heroes, particularly when working with an ensemble cast. Um, the, um, when I first, um, a little bit of backstory on that, when I first got together with Will Tracy, the co-writer of the script, he he'd sent uh, we, we were working together on an episode called Turnhaven back in season two um, of Succession. And um, the episode was primarily one big dinner party. Um, and, uh, and to get that sense of immersion and, and reality and authenticity to that dinner party, I haven't read up. Hugely on, on Altman's way of working, and also, um, having worked with two brilliant actors, Charles Dunst and Sir Michael Gambon, who were in Gosford Park, which was another big touchstone for me with, with the menu. And they told me how Robert worked with them on set, and it was basically that everybody, as you say, was mic'd all the time. Um, and we'd worked with two sound mixers, being slightly reductive to their incredible craft, but basically, one is you know, concentrating on the main script and the other is is isolating and, and actually isolating this darwinian sense of okay where is there something interesting happening at which table um because i'd be encouraging the actors to basically improv up all the time so that at every moment the camera could find any piece of any table any piece of action um i would never say cut when this you know when the scripted elements end and out of that came this lovely sense of immersion i hopefully an authenticity to the to both that you know, dinner party in succession and, and and carrying that over into our dining room in the menu.
0: Absolutely. I and mean, Gottschard Park is a phenomenal pull. That makes a ton of mm-hmm. sense. To to go back to something, you know, it's, it's remarkable the way that you track the light over the course of this evening, but I imagine it was a huge logistical challenge. I'm curious if you could talk about sort of um, organizing around sort of the passing of time.
1: Yeah, the passing of time was aided hugely by the fact that um, we we built the set in a in, in a sweaty warehouse in Savannah, Georgia, and there was a huge uh, kind of gold rush as we came out of the first lockdown of uh, of COVID. Um, everybody trying to get back into production as soon as possible, so we literally couldn't find stage space, um, but this warehouse came to our rescue and. Uh, and because we built the location, we could therefore obviously control the light. Um, and uh, and it gave us the ability to shoot most of the film almost entirely chronologically. Um, and that was huge, um, both in terms of the craft element of of, of modulating the light and the, the change of light through the evening. And and and, and also doing that with the performances, uh, equally as important, if not more so. Um, particularly for me, I had Peter Deming, you know, this brilliant DP who'd shot with pretty much every horror master you could possibly name in the late 20th century into 21st century. And um one of the reasons I wanted to work with him because he knew that genre element so well. And also he just, and by extension, he has this ability to kind of trap energy in a frame Um and pretty much what I was trying to do with dramatic tension also to trap it in the frame. And Peter is such a brilliant collaborator with that and such a master of his craft. Um I knew that he would be able to, graduate that and, and, and match our interior to our exterior beat shots that we were, you know, putting in in post. Um, all of that craft element pretty much handed over to Peter because he, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing on that. That allowed me to focus primarily on a big, you know, ensemble cast. You know, uh, it's, such a, it's one dining room, but there's maybe 15, 16 actors on set at any one time, plus, you know, 20 cooks and, um, and front of house staff. So wor- working with them became my kind of on-set priority i suppose amongst other things um and that chronological shooting allowed us all to go on a journey at the same time a big first day of rehearsal for instance um i, I as a bit of homework without which hoping that that doesn't sound patronizing um to a masterful bunch of actors um i asked them to go and watch um the exterminating angel when wells film which from 1962 to the I'd seen years ago and there was something that stuck with me and it was, um, uh, and when I read the script I immediately went back and revisited it and it was and the same thing that was kind of from years ago t- came back to the surface. well has this he imbues his characters those diners stuck in this, in this imaginary walls of this uh, uh, after party um, with a, a dawning sense of culpability um, for their part in the inequality of their, their society uh, and that um or at least that was my reading of it. Um, but well was fantastically kind of uh, tight-lipped about what it actually all meant, wasn't he? Um but um that allowed me to talk about that with all our diners and for us to plot that idea so that when they first walk into this space, they're filled with entitlement okay. and 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 then their bloated ego through their own sense of exclusivity. And uh and course by course the whispers of Chef Slowick um gradually peels back that ego um uh, uh, and finds their layers of vulnerability and finds that innocence so that by the last course hopefully you know they're they're willingly paying the check <laughs> yeah uh, 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 and, uh, and they're willingly you know peck paying the price for their for their place uh, 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 and for their contribution to the problem that, that Slow exceeds exceeded
0: this seems like fascinating and, and rare challenge for a director to sort of embody a character in like a lot of the photography choices you're making especially about the food and so I'm curious how you arrived at sort of like, how familiar were you with like that sort of chef's table food photography and like what is, it feels like there's a slightly slanted view of it that Slowick has.
1: Yeah, that, that, that whole high-end cuisine side of the story, I was almost entirely totally ignorant of um, when I joined the project, um, which a few years ago, actually, I'd have run a mile actually, but to, to the idea of trying to jump into a story about a world of which I was so ignorant but I you know made a pact with myself a few years ago that I would try to run towards that which scares me rather than, rather than the opposite um and that's but I, I've found that has led to many kind of happy work experiences uh, uh of actually just diving in there's something about that deep dive which um and just yeah facing your own fears of, uh, of just being exposed um uh, and just jumping in there which was huge um I couldn't do a lot of um, site visits, unfortunately, to these restaurants because of COVID. Um, Indeed. So it was a lot of reading, a lot of watching, and a lot of talking to people. Um, first thing to do was to shore up my weaknesses, really. So I sent the script to, to Dominique Crenn, an incredible artist and chef, the first, and I think still the only woman in America to have three Michelin stars. She's, she's based in San Francisco, and she loved the script. Um, she thought it was such fun poking at the excesses of her own art form um so she came aboard as our collaborator for, for kind of all things high-end cuisine and worked with Ethan our production designer just to I- ensure that every choice we made you know was kind of signed off by a three Michelin star chef so and that gave me huge confidence that we had that sense of authenticity in the kitchen and we extended that you know to, into a, almost a kind of obsession really and we ran a boot camp with uh, with Dominique and and business partner Wan and, and a local brilliant chef John Ben Hayes um working all our kitchen staff who were all recruited specifically because they already had you know kitchen experience um in the service industry. Um and we ran a boot camp with them for a good few days while we were finishing off the set around them um and drilling them really for, so that everything or well, firstly on that creative level I, I wanted there to be this um slightly heightened military choreography to everything they did as part of our hopefully satirical under underlie. But um but really, primarily, so that everything that they did at any time during the evening that we spend with these characters was completely correct for whatever was the next course that was to be served, and um for all the you know past poking at this particular you know kind of corroded art form um did really want to be respectful to the to the actual humans who practice it. I came out of the that whole deep dive with a tremendous respect for. For the individual, their extraordinary work I think 52 weeks a year, just left me really awed, actually. It's, uh, I can't imagine a, a harder way to make a living. Next thing really to do, having got that authenticity in the presentation of the food and actually worked carefully with pretty much a triangle, I suppose, of Dominique and Ethan and myself, we were asking, and a fascinating challenge, I think, that Dominique was really interested in was this idea she herself is a very warm character but chef slowick you know uh, having designed this menu at this particular stage of his career is not so warm at least you know um at least on the outside he's a a broken uh, a a broken character Uh, and it it takes a
0: cheeseburger to warm him up
1: (laughs) exactly but we needed dominique to play a role in terms of creating this menu, uh, particularly what it would look like um, on camera, it needed to be beautiful. It needed to be amazing and look like, you know, it had come from one, from one of the world's greatest chefs, but there also had to be, you know, to those that really know and probably know a lot more than me, there also had to be something slightly dead to it, a little emotionally dead, a little emotionally cold, and I think finding the nuance of that through various iterations of each course was really fascinating to to, to look at and say okay what what does that say to me um, um and that was a lovely process um and then when it comes to photographing the food yes I devoured chef's table every every episode um David Gel Galb and uh, and his DP Wilbur Santa, had revolutionised the way we photograph food it felt so kind of deceptively simple and me and peter, peter did a i think a creditable job of actually you know imitating that or trying to you know a certain homage to it but um but it's still true that when i got into the edit i still felt we were missing a, a little soup of you know of food porn we needed a little more so so again you know with uh show up your weaknesses i called david gelb and um who was a friend of the project anyway um i think he was developing something with uh with adam and betsy at high project um we basically asked him to come and do some food shots for us and uh which he was totally up for so we all went over to la to back to the high project offices because we'd run out of money pretty much by then and did a little um weekend of food photography and it was such an education uh, apart from the fact that david and will are the loveliest men we talked about and designed you know maybe six or seven key shots that we felt would just up the ante and i'd lost peter because he'd gone off to uh, to Prague to shoot a movie. Um, so David stepped in, and between him, him and Will, they just created these dazzling shots, um, which just upped the ante. And, and as soon as I dropped these shots in, um, into the edit with Chris, and we sat back and watched the film through again, it just elevated the whole thing. I talk about punching above its weight. It was quite amazing what a difference it made. And just to have that, the real deal in there was fantastic.
0: That's wild. Did you get it for the the actual um, menu items with their, the lovely titles and stuff on them, or was it a mix?
1: A, co- a combination, really. Um, we were kind of greedy for whatever we could get, but uh, we did, uh, let me see, specifically, there was a lovely one, which for the first course, where, where you see the camera drift up this, all this dry ice down these kind of seashells, um, uh, seafood shells, uh, and comes up to this kind of heroic moment with the with the scallop atop the rock, with the, with the... Barely frozen seawater on top. That that was a really fun shot. It was such a, it was so over the top. I just loved it. Um, the um the no bread um plate was was a was a David special. I think um, but some some really lovely and it, just their way of working together. Will and David. It seems so deceptively simple. You put a light there. Dum 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 dum. And they um within a very short period of time they would have this kind of magical looking. Um, composition it was really lovely to watch it
0: that's great that it's there and that then you can go and heighten it where with like uh mm. the ceiling shot of the s'mores
1: <laughs> yeah that was a fun that was a, a very kind of late evolution actually there was some oh really we what we, well, we knew we were walking towards working towards this you know hopefully quite operatic ending but i didn't feel that my visual approach was good enough really so, and um and i kept thinking back to again, you know, actually I think it was a shot that David did originally on the title which made it into the titles, title sequence of chef's table, this, this tabletop shot down on a on a, a Grant Akats special. Grant Akats is this brilliant American chef working out of Chicago a restaurant called Linear. And he did this brilliant dessert, a deconstructed dessert where he basically covered the diner's table in this kind of grey paper. Um and then two chefs would come to the table and basically take all the elements of the dessert that whether it be you know poured chocolate or on right, and then just smush it up all around the table, and and the, so that the you know the, so you basically eat, eat it effectively off the tablecloth, um, and it's just a, a and, and the image was so beautiful. I started thinking, what if we did that for the whole restaurant? You know, scaled it up so the whole restaurant was the dessert. And as soon as I started talking about this and drawing it with Ethan and Peter and and, and Amy, our costume designer, um we started trying to work out all the elements that we need to do that and it it turned out it was almost preposterously difficult to achieve it required us to cut a special hole in the in the ceiling of our restaurant construction to get the camo because of knowing the angle that we needed and and to get to the right height for it with our aspect ratio um and then to get the hats, the chocolate hats to melt, Amy and her team with Christopher and her gang, were doing all these tests on various viscosities of chocolate with um, and then putting and then putting thermometers and uh and hair dryers up against them to see you know how we could safely make those melt down the actors' faces without you know without harming the actors. The marshmallow ponchos was really pretty much everybody weighing in specifically my own children Amy created a sweatshop in our front room um, and basically bribed them to stick thousands of marshmallows onto ponchos um incredible over a couple of weeks so uh, and so everybody dived in to try and create this image um and uh and yeah it, it's you know if nothing else it's very singular
0: absolutely but like it's paired with you know this incredible pathos on all of their faces and so mm-hmm. it's 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 the same like sort of tonal blend that's that's working in the movie throughout. I would love to ask you a little bit, you, uh, you mentioned sort of the sort of military style ethos of, of the chefs, and I would love for you to to talk a little bit about kind of this interplay between silence and harshness that's going on throughout the film.
1: Yeah, in, in terms of trying to embrace the genre element to give everybody the cinematic ride, it was actually uh, inspired by Black Swan, um, just the way that Darren Aronofsky really weaponized sound in that film, if you listen to it, you know, just as you know what should be a, a relatively simple transition moment being on the subway with Natalie Portman's character or something like that there were just in, in the mix they were just heighten uh, and maybe an element of slight distort or augmentation but there was something going on that I could never quite put my finger on um to to basically you know everyday effects which which just gave you a sense of unease and it wasn't just about volume obviously you know route one in, in a horror movie is you know the the string crash or just sudden bash across the head sonically. Um, I, I didn't want to go that way. It felt, you know, too specifically genre, too on the nose, maybe a little bit too easy. But I did want to create this increasing sense of unease through with every tool, you know, at our disposal. And one of those, of course, is sound. Um, that obviously splits into two branches. Um, the, the brilliant Colin Stetson taking care of the the score. I, I'd, I'd watched the way he worked on hereditary and 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 his kind of r- refusal to to go for route one he he would work you know his whole approach is so singular and depth and layered and uh i i knew that he would never go route one for a jump scare it would always be more a slow building dread and almost a celebration because again if you come back to the idea of you know what would Slowick do this is his evening and you know for him Film had a very very happy ending, a, a transcendence, a liberation that he's craved for so long. Um, so there had to be an element of beauty and celebration to that, as, uh, as well as, as hopefully myriad other emotions. So, so we had it covered with Colin. Um, and in terms of sound effects, the sound team were just brilliant at actually sending. Over to the edit, these it's like countless iterations of, of the clap, um, yeah, the, of Chef's clap and uh, or, or the breaking of the glass when Tyler, when N- Nicholas, K- uh, Nicholas Holt's character knocks the glass uh, o- over. So, we take any opportunity to, to weaponize sound, yeah, to hopefully just slightly put the audience on edge, even to do with the swishing of air whenever the door was hinged open. Elements mm. like this just gave us this, uh, it built and hopefully created a soundscape um, the, in the same way that hopefully visually we created, And again, a big advantage of this particular story. We could create a world, literally a four-world world, uh, where we can create our own rules, Chef's Loic's rules, and, and trap the diners and, and trap the audience um, in, in that place. And we we're trying to build um, the rules for the, for the sound within that world also.
0: Yeah, totally. And it's rewarding because then when... Um... Uh, Margot goes into Chef Slowick's house we get sort of like the nega version of both Mm -hmm. the the set and and sound um during during that fight sequence which must have been like a fun change of pace
1: it it was exactly that it was um there's there's a couple of places in the film where it just felt necessary to to really just breathe a little bit and explode and uh and that kind of pent-up tension is is fun to release every now and then you know whether it be you know chasing the male diners through the forest or, um, or, or, or in this case, you know, Hong's character of, of, you know, finally get to, to show her kind of true colors, her street colors.
0: We'll put like a slight spoiler warning, but I would love to ask you about the stuff, uh, with Anya Taylor-Joy on the boat at the end, both that incredible like flash that you see in her eye. I'm curious how you achieved that. And also mm-hmm. kind of what, what were y'all talking about and discussing for her character in those last moments?
1: Oh, a, a lot, you know. Um, the um, the flash in the eyes was was a you know simple reflection trick, and and, and actually I think we augmented it with um, with post production. Um, nice. So, so we gave it a little bit of help there. Yeah, the actual driving of the boat out there, <laughs> and you did that herself, um, which was fantastic. We obviously we made sure it was safe, and we had guide boats and everything around. But she was driving that boat in pitch blackness, and um, occasionally you know one of us would jump on the radio and say you know ten degrees left. <laughs> Five degrees <laughs> right, just so she did not bump into anything. Um, but um, yeah, once we got onto that onto that boat for that last section, it's somewhat difficult to be reductive about it, and I'm somewhat reluctant because there are some things which, very specifically, you know, in terms of the level of social comment or the or the level of all the internalization, the, the internal journey of any of the characters, specifically. In sure,
0: you don't um, want to spoil it.
1: Yeah, but it, and it's not that spoiling. It. It's also it, it's not wanting to. I have a specific thoughts myself, but I also know that Anya's were slightly different, and and I hope that the audience might read several different ways into it. I'll I'll tell you what we speak about, or what my opinion was that actually, there is this obviously conflict stroke connection, yin-yang thing, the push and pull between, in that chess match between Chef Loic and uh, and and, and Anya's character, Margot. Um, and the, so one can ask, so when she actually walks out of the restaurant, you can ask yourself the question, did she win that? Did she manipulate her way to freedom or did he just let her go? Or is it a combination of both of those and maybe right. a few other things also? I kind of err towards the latter. Uh, I, I think there was a, once she'd sprung the, sprung the trap or, or rather given him that gift of actually experiencing joy in, in his art one more time. I think the quid pro quo of that from his point of view was okay, thank you for that. And that's my, and here's my gift to you. So I think there's been that connective moment. And then beyond that, once she's out on the, when she's out and reflecting on the horror of that night um, and everything that goes with that and that very strange connection to Slowik, I think it's a purge. I think the final bite down on the burger is a bit of an FU. I survived. Um, I think there's, you know, hopefully, I can't speak for any here, but certainly in her case, I think there was certainly a feminist element to that. But there was a there was an element of I beat you. Um, I think that is in there. But it's complex,
0: hopefully. It's sharp more than anything else. And I think different people will put on different emotions onto that. The last question I had for you uh, was sort of uh, armed with kind of the the skills and the muscles you've built on this film. What would you like to do next with something that you feel like you could tackle now?
1: Oh, more, 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 more of anything, more of everything, more of anything that I just, that is compelling and terrifying in equal measure. And, um, and yeah, it just... Uh, i mean, I'm, I'm. I feel bolder. I suppose. Um, if I love something, I, I don't necessarily now think hmm, somebody else can do that. You know, there's a little bit of that thinks, yeah, I can do that. I can dig into that and face my fears and uh, and make a, You know, make that a positive in the in the storytelling. You come in with fresh. There's no way you come into a story that you, a world you know nothing about. You can't be complacent. You just can't because there's just too much to to unearth. And there's so many great stories that yeah, I just can't wait to do the next one.